Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And today we're interviewing our friend Austin Jorgensen. Just a few things before we get started. First off, we are a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. The Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Another great podcast on the Dialogue Podcast Network is the Mormon News Report. Their most recent episode, number 170, wow guys, it's breaking down some of the biggest talks within General Conference. And when you listen to it, you might not agree with everything or disagree with everything. There's a lot of different views that are brought in and that's the great part of it. They do a great job at breaking things down. Ah, it's a wonderful, wonderful discussion. So be sure to check that out. Also, fun fact, (laughs) the reason I personally know Austin Jorgensen, our interviewee for today, is actually he was the person that trained my husband when they were both missionaries. So we do have some background there. In this interview, I do refer to Austin Jorgensen on and off as Jorg because that was his nickname on the mission. So just to clarify that... And lastly, just as a reminder, our purpose here at Holy Human is to bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. That means that we're going to bring a lot of different perspectives and experiences in and people that are in a lot of different places in their life and their spirituality. Yep. We're going to do our best to invite people on and share the stories of people who are within the church, who have a negotiated relationship with the church, and people who have left the church, or people that are yet to join the church. We appreciate all different kinds of perspectives, especially in marginalized communities. There's a lot to be learned there, and there's a lot of experiences to be shared that haven't been shared for centuries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we feel like it adds to our understanding of the church and our own understandings of where we believe. The episode today is no exception. Austin Jorgensen has recently left the church and he'll share more about his story. We wanted to express that beforehand and share that we're really excited to learn from Jorg today. (laughs) Okay, now it's time to jump on in. Welcome to Holy Human, Jorg. We're just going to have you introduce yourself really quick for our friends who haven't met you yet. Sure. So my name's Austin, and I live in Austin, Texas. I've lived here for a number of years now. I'm 27. I have cerebral palsy. Specifically, I have triplegia, which affects both of my legs and my left hand. And I have full range of motion in my right hand. And I've had it all my life. It's just something I was born with. It was due in part because I was premature. I was born, I don't know, I think like two or three months early. It has to do with the lack of oxygen that goes to your brain Mm -hmm. in the womb. And so really it's a, a neurological disorder that manifests itself. So I don't really have like atrophied muscles necessarily. The muscles are all there, but I don't have the ability to basically control the muscles from my brain and pinpoint individual parts of, say, my fingers and my left hand. But I can move my arm around and I can move my hand around, but I just can't get really minute with the movements. Mm -hmm. Also, most of the research I've done 
would indicate that it doesn't get worse with age. It's basically the same. And you can do a, a little bit of physical therapy and you can do some chiropractic services and injections and things like that. Um, it's gotten a lot more advanced now, I think, in terms of like Botox and other things you can do when the, when the kid's really little hmm. to kind of minimize it. Because, you know, kids love Botox. <laughs> wow. So for you, did you have any kind of treatment when you were little or? Yeah. So fortunately, I was born in California. And so there was, you know, reasonably good infrastructure for young kids with disabilities, despite my mm -hmm. parents, at least to my knowledge, not having any sort of insurance. So I had access to some really great services, a lot of really good physical therapy sessions that I remember I had access to a speech therapist. There was pretty involved programs in school, teacher aid and things like that. When I was really little, I had a walker, but as I got older, I, I never had any other assistive apparatus. I also had a lot of braces and uh, braces on my legs and casting and things like that to help straighten out as much as I could when I was growing to develop as typically as possible. Wow. So they were pretty effective and now you don't need to use those kind of aids anymore. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was necessarily their knowledge and like sheer force of will. I think it was kind of luck of the draw. Just my case of cerebral palsy is on the spectrum, I think is relatively minor. When people have cerebral palsy, a lot of times they're not verbal. It's another part of it. I, for example, didn't walk or talk until I was three. That a lot of times for other kids, they don't talk and they're in wheelchairs or they, they need some sort of assistance walking. And spasms are a lot more common. I am really, really fortunate, and I think I'm also in the minority, that I have occasional spasms in like my hand, but they're relatively minute and they're not super painful. A lot of people with cerebral palsy have really profound and intense spasms, and that's why they now do Botox, is mm -hmm. to, they're just trying to stop any movement of mm. the muscles and spasms. Okay. Cool. Thanks for laying all that out for us and helping us understand. <laughs> yeah, no problem. What was your experience like as a disabled kid growing up in the church? Yeah, I think no one would argue with me if I say that the church holds some fairly typical views on like masculinity and gender roles and stuff. And so that was always a little challenging because growing up as a man in the church, you know, I was kind of in this category of going and doing high adventure and Boy Scouts and father and son campouts and things like that. That's obviously incongruent for a, a number of reasons. You know, I maybe have like a passive interest in camping. It was like literally a merit-based version of camping. You wouldn't just go and enjoy and commune with nature. You would like go out in nature and prove on like a piece of paper and get a merit badge for like tying a knot or something or uh, you know, building a fire or whatever. And those are especially difficult things because it was almost like a metric for how dexterous are you, which I obviously was not. It was probably one of the most challenging things. But fortunately, I think I did a pretty good job of having an easygoing attitude about it and being very like self-deprecating. And it was, you know, you're just kind of chumming with the boys and, and doing that. And they knew that you, you know, weren't going to be able to keep up with the heights and you'd kind of make a game of it almost. That really wasn't too bad. I have pretty fond memories of that. What was really challenging, though, was dancing and dating. 
going to church dances sits perfectly the intersection of things I absolutely hate, which is courting women and like moving quickly and swiftly on my feet. Like it's not doesn't do anything for me, you know? Like that's just terrible. I hate that. And so anyway, that was what stands out to me as like really difficult because those were kind of the two mechanisms in which you would socialize as like a youth in the church. You'd you know, fraternize with the boys doing these kind of masculine, manly outdoor things. And then you would court the girls by dancing. And it was, it just felt, felt very like primal to me. <laughs> so you mentioned that you kind of fell into doing like self-deprecating jokes just to kind of like make it easier when you had to do these tasks that weren't really built for you. Yeah. Did you feel like that was forced? Like you felt like you had to do it to make other people comfortable? Or was that what you did to make yourself comfortable? Does that I make sense? Yeah. Ask this exact question. Yes, Katie. It was definitely to make myself more comfortable. Okay. I did it more instinctually because I would get really self-conscious. You know, we would be hiking or something. And I found pretty early on that, you know, you guys probably know this more than anyone, but you adapt your surroundings to be able to kind of make it work. And so I found that if I grabbed a big, huge stick on the ground, I would kind of use this to be able to get up the trail. Mm-hmm. And so I could make a joke about how I was like this geriatric old man. And I had the staff or I was Moses or, you know, there was a way to kind of make it playful and fun. And to them, it was, you know, it became part of the camp experience and story when we would go back home. But to me, it was like the difference between being able to get up the path and not. I had to do that. And so it was just a way to soften how I was other or different from the other kids. So by you doing that, you kind of wove yourself into the narrative of camp life. Yeah. Okay. I didn't feel any obligation from the leaders or anything. If anything, the leaders took more of a coddling, infantilizing approach. And mm-hmm. I would kind of buck that by, I mean, I probably wouldn't do this now because times have changed and I've learned more. But, you know, I would be really jarring and really shocking in my language, too. So I would be self-deprecating to the point where it would make other people uncomfortable. <laughs> And I did that because that, for me, was a way to alleviate the situation because I was trailing behind. I maybe couldn't do something. I was genuinely struggling. But if I said something that was just so out of left field and made a 45-year-old overweight white guy really uncomfortable, then I felt like I was able to kind of take back some of the control. Does that make sense? I love it. (laughs) Did you feel like you had to go or did you want to go to these activities and it was just hard to do it? Yeah, no. I think all or most of my siblings have gotten their Eagle Scout. My parents were very transparent with me. They were like, hey, you know, you don't need to get an Eagle Scout. What we would really like you to focus your efforts on is duty to God. They said that's more of planning and coordinating and behind the desk and logistics and stuff and not physically doing stuff. And so I was under no obligation from my family to go on these campouts, but I think I was a pretty devout member of the church. And I think there's a lot of people when they're in their teenage years and stuff, they question the church and they maybe don't want to participate. I did the exact opposite. I think I was probably the most devout and the most involved in the church from about 12 until fairly recently. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go do those things because it was something to do. And it, made me feel normal. (laughs) And yeah, and you want to be with your friends and other members. 
Hmm. Okay. In general, what was your experience with church attendance or other activities? Did you come across any other barriers? Sure. I never really noticed it holding me back. I mean, there's the obvious time that I've had the disability hold me back in a calling setting is my mission. Other than that, it really it didn't seem like I was denied any opportunities. I you know served as a mission leader and I gave talks and I did all of those things. So I didn't really feel like I was less than in that sense. If anything, it was just more of, you know, wow, isn't Austin an inspiration? You know, isn't this mm-hmm. just so cool that he is doing this or, you know, the whole Herculean overcoming all this stuff kind mm-hmm. of narrative. Yeah. Which, you know, maybe I can see it. It, it didn't bother me. I thought it was cool. You know, I was like, yeah, it is kind of cool that I'm doing this. I mean, sure, if people are like infantilizing you or, or you know, being like rude or whatever, that's you know, like, of course, that's different. But I think it's pretty cool. I mean, I have cerebral palsy on paper. I look pretty bad. I look pretty rough. And it doesn't really register with me that often because I don't know any different. I've never known what it's like. And so I just kind of operate under the assumption that the world wasn't built for me. And I'm just going to kind of do this stuff. And so the fact that I'm living what I would consider to be like, barely representative of a typical life it's like yeah no like that's cool like I think that's awesome my disability doesn't really register one way or the other it's part of my identity yes but I feel like it's for better or worse and I think this is part of the reason why what you're doing is so important is because I've never really contemplated it in any meaningful Mm -hmm. way now I'm starting to think about these things but prior to this I just didn't really think about it all that often it was all internal I would think about these things myself but I didn't think other people thought about it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not a very self-aware person. <laughs> it's hard to break it apart when this is literally like, I don't wake up and I'm like, I'm disabled today. You know, it's just like your life. It's what yeah. you are. And, you know, it can be really hard to separate the two. Like, I'm getting treated this way because I'm disabled or I'm getting treated this way because I'm here in this room and there's people around. And, and a lot of it is internalized. Yeah. Yeah, I think... My disability, at least, well, I'm pretty sure my autism has been present my whole life, but my cataplexy and my narcolepsy symptoms didn't emerge until I was like 19, but now it's been like seven years. (laughs) So, I mean, it's not a lot, but it's been a while and I've gotten so accustomed to it that I just kind of like what you said, Katie, you don't wake up and think, oh, I'm disabled today. You know, like I just go, I'm walking to the fridge and my legs give out okay, I grab onto the counter and pull myself back up and get my milk. It's normal to me. And I think they thought that my cataplexy attacks only happened when I was like really upset, like when I was really angry or really sad or really happy or really horny, which it does happen at all those times. Like, let's be real. But I I guess I never like verbalized it for other people how much it happens every single day, you know, like walking to the fridge or like going to the car or like just thinking about some random thing and my legs give out. And anyway, I'm thinking of keeping track of it and videotaping it more to help people that are experiencing those symptoms and have no clue. But anyway, but yeah, that's that's my thought on that. Okay. Well, you mentioned your mission when you were speaking just now, Jorik. Yeah. Could you go a little bit into what the process was like when you received your call and what your day-to-day service was like on the mission or any experiences you'd like to share there? Sure. So I kind of have to put a tinfoil hat on a little bit because I have a conspiracy theory around my mission call. Let's do it. So the way that I had gotten my mission call 
when I started my papers, it was really drawn out. It took two or three times longer than normal. I had to go to the doctor a few times and get really long form versions of every like physical and all this stuff done. Anyway, I eventually got all of this paperwork submitted and we had heard like nothing back from the church for a really long time. And then one night late, it was like seven or eight o'clock at night. We got a call from our stake president and he was like, hey, can you come to the stake center like right now? And we're like, okay, cool, whatever. So we get dressed up and we go down to the stake center and we meet with the stake president. And before he says anything, he starts asking me a bunch of questions. You know, do you feel like you have a strong testimony? I was like, sure. And then he's like, no, but really, like, do you think that if you were presented with a lot of anti-Mormon literature or ideas or something that you would be okay with that? I was like, yes. And then he asked me like other pragmatic questions like, can you type on the computer? Are you proficient at using the internet? And it was all kind of getting very specific, but he wasn't really saying anything. And so he said, you know, you have received a call to serve in the Missionary Training Center mission. And he said, would you accept that call? And I said, well, did it come from the brethren? And he was like, yes. And I was like, well, then like, of course. And frankly, I was kind of annoyed. Like, I didn't understand this because they don't do this with a typical person where if they get called to Mexico City or whatever and have you come down and, like, ask you all these probing questions. This is silly. Like, you should have just sent this to me in the mail. Like, why did I have to get dressed up and come down here for this? Anyway, I don't think that they mailed it to our house. I think I collected it from the state president not that much longer, like maybe a week later. And then... I remember we were at my brother's house and it was just me and my mom and no one else. And we were upstairs and I unceremoniously opened my call and I like read what I already knew was in there. And there was like no fanfare. No one was there. We didn't call anyone. It was just like, okay, cool. The weird thing is that when I read my call, I left for the MTC. I think it was less than 14 days from when I had gotten my call. So it was like a huge mad dash wow and i worked at the time i worked at the apple store and so i had to like quit and go and like get ready and do all this stuff you know wow and so that was what was really weird now do you want to hear the conspiracy yes 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 so that's how it had gone for me and i assumed that it was just a standard mission call but that my state president kind of in the spirit of all other ecclesiastical leaders that i had grown up with was just a little protective and so he brought me down and that's maybe why he had asked me these questions for a little bit of context my state president great guy and he was like the cfo of a giant oil company so when i was on my mission about a year in we had missionaries who would come in and you would start to talk to them how was your call experience what was it like how did you get here because it's such an obscure mission that most people had some story and almost every person had been denied a call and they were honorably excused from serving a mission and generally and i really commend the missionaries generally the missionaries would say no come on man like i want to serve a mission is there anything that we can do and Because of the missionaries' insistence, they would go and find a way for them to serve this mission, right? What I think happened is I think that the missionary department sent a letter to my state president and honorably excused me from service. And the reason I hadn't heard anything back for two or three weeks is because he knows a lot of people in high places. And I think that he went to these people and he said, 
I know he looks bad on paper, but you don't understand. He works at the Apple store. He started his own little eBay business. And he's enterprising and he knows how to do this stuff. And he's smart. Come on, guys. Like, surely you can think of something. I think that he went to them, got this call, and then that's why he brought me down. But he conveniently concealed the fact that I, I believe that I was honorably excused. He just said, you've received a call to the Missionary Training Center mission. Would you accept the call? Which, of course, in hindsight, if you would have put those two side by side, I don't know what I would have chosen, but I probably, if they would have said, hey, we believe that we commune with God and God has told us through some mechanism that you are not to serve a mission, I think I would have taken that just as the same inspiration. I could go on and on about how I feel about that, but that was what was kind of weird is it it felt like there was maybe some things going on behind the scenes that I wasn't aware of. Wow. I uh, have a lot of feelings right now. Uh, (laughs) I was early medically released on my mission because of my undiagnosed cataplexy and narcolepsy, and I tried to go back out for years, kept trying, and then there kept being obstacles, so I had to like pause and then tried again obstacles pause got married got an annulment tried again you know and all these things kept happening that prevented me and at the end there when I finally quote-unquote gave up it was 2018 and I'd just gotten my annulment I had depression and anxiety diagnoses I had cataplexy and narcolepsy diagnoses and broken the law of chastity at that point they're like yeah there's there's no way they're gonna approve you you know like and I think at that point I was like yeah at this point I don't want to anymore but like uh, it frustrates me that I didn't even know that your mission was an option you know like maybe if I had pushed them a little bit harder maybe they maybe they would have thought that was an option for me yeah and I, I'm not even active in the church anymore, and it still bothers me this much. <laughs> um, it's hard when it's like you got to know the right people too. Like, exactly. uh, that's really hard. Yeah, I was gonna echo that a little bit, and again, this gets a little conspiracy theory. But if it's of any value to you at all, I did nothing to do this, and I just happened to be in the right place with someone who is not used to hearing the word no. <laughs> and I think that that guy was diehard and yeah. incredibly well-connected. Who would have thought that, you know, a high-powered executive in the business world would be able to get an advantage over the carpenter who is the state president, you know, somewhere out yeah. in the middle of nowhere. It was not fair. It wasn't equal. The placement was not equal. And to speak candidly, I don't agree with any of it, but I think that there could be an argument that maybe the decision to be honorably excused from a mission could be divinely inspired. But I feel like the mechanism in which I was called to this mission was strictly just a bureaucracy and there was no divinity in this process. I think it actually is a manifestation of the pride of man saying, no, Hmm. that is not correct. Go back to the drawing board. Think again. So I don't think you could have done anything because I didn't no. do anything. Fair. I mean, you could almost look at it like your stake president used his privilege to help out you in your position of marginalization as a disabled man. 
Yeah, you can say, oh, well, it's biased. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, I mean, it worked out, you know, like good for him for using the power that he had to help you. I think Um, that's how he viewed it, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would like to be one of those powerful, privileged people, but that's not going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, getting mission calls is a great example of a gap that exists in the church between able-bodied people and disabled people. When disabled people get mission calls, it's way more complicated. And there's a lot of people making choices for disabled people when they get their mission calls that don't have a good understanding of disability in general. And, you know, we all have been off of that time in our lives for a while. So I know that they're pushing service missions a lot more and we we need to learn more about that before we really speak about it. But it does seem like they need to have a better process in how they consider calling disabled people to the mission and unfortunately it seems like desire doesn't really matter if you're too disabled you know what i mean Mm. um which in the scriptures the scriptures only talk about desire being called to the work well what defines too disabled because in my opinion well and this this might sound bad but i feel like i'm a lot more privileged than other people who are disabled because like Yes, sometimes I can't walk, but I don't have any like chronic pain, you know, like, and I am ambulatory a lot of the times. I'm not going to put a percentage on it because it varies, but like, they still consider me too disabled, you know? Anyway, it's just like their their perception of what's too disabled is so subjective and and not well-informed at all. And I don't think they should be using that measurement at all because it's, Yeah. And also what you're talking about with scriptures and with desire, I think you're talking about Doctrine and Covenants section four, right? Like if you have a desire to serve, then you're called to the work sort of thing. But there are disabled missionaries in the scriptures too. You look at Ammon, I'm pretty sure it was. Like he he fainted all the time. He collapsed all the time. And oh. I like absolutely love him because I'm like, oh, he had cataplexy. Oh. You know? like because he like whenever he was overwhelmed by emotion he fell down and I was like that's me anyway well there's a lot of conversation there that we'll go into another time but thank you for sharing (laughs) your experience George we really appreciate more insight into that and how there's so many diverse experiences if you're disabled and are trying to go on a mission it's incredible okay next question are you ready yeah what, if any, similarities and differences do you see between your experience as disabled in the church and your experience as being queer in the church? Yeah, I, the way that I took this, when I'm thinking about this, is I think that they share something in that they are both incongruent with the plan of happiness. Okay. I feel that if there is truly this idea that there is an eternal family and a plan of happiness and we lived before and we will live after and that we're here. And of course you can read scriptures for days and interpret them different ways. But when I read things like the family proclamation, for example, or other scriptures, you're being returned to a perfect form. You know, when you die, do you feel like you will be disabled? What does perfected mean to you? Does that mean disabled or not disabled? Is this rhetorical or you want me to answer? I mean, you can answer. I don't mind my cataplexy, honestly. I mean, it, it bothers me when I can't access certain things, but it in itself is not what bothers me. It's people's reactions to it is what bothers me. Narcolepsy, I've come to less peace with it. 
So just so you know, Jorg, we have had this discussion on our podcast before, and that's why we love that that's where your brain went, because we've thought so similarly. Um, We've pulled scriptures where there's times where before Christ heals someone, he says, what would that thou would have me do? Meaning like, what do you need? Not just like, you're disabled. I need to heal you, you know? And then there's other parts where it talks about John, the beloved. He chose not to die. He chose to stay on earth until Christ's second coming. And that was his righteous desire and God granted it. Pulling a couple different scriptures like that, we believe that it's possible that when a disabled person or a queer person or whoever when people get to heaven, that our righteous desires will be considered. So will there be disabled people in heaven? Possibly. We believe probably. Will there be LGBTQ people in heaven? We believe probably, definitely, you know? Um, it just really kind of depends on, like, true desires of the hearts. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because, you know, I take maybe a little bit more of a cynical view in the sense that I think if we were having this conversation 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. I think that we all would have sat here and thought that perfected meant white, Mm able-bodied, heterosexual. And we obviously, I mean, I think every member of the church, even, you know, the ones that are starting MLMs in Ogden or whatever, (laughs) are like, you know, of course not everyone is going to be white, right? Like, of course there's going to be a multi-ethnic group of people in heaven, But I think there's still a subset who would say that they're going to be able-bodied and that they're going to be straight. Oh, for sure. Which one is being taught and what does the church in general envision? For sure, it's able-bodied. For sure, it's straight, you know, cisgender, uh, race, I agree. But hopefully, hopefully that's like us seeing a shift. There's people that don't see that, you know. I think it's fascinating that if this is an eternal gospel, How on earth can in 50 years we have such a fundamental alteration of what it means to be perfected? Mm -hmm. How can you truly believe? I don't know. So this is where I kind of get a little bit more like angry and and upset. It's like I was told that this is an eternal truth Mm -hmm. and that it will be Mm -hmm. unchanged. You know, we don't need to dissect that. I don't want to agitate people. But you know what I mean? Like, I kind of take issue with that because it's like, well, it's very convenient that now the idea that there's a multi-ethnic afterlife, it's like, well, of course, okay. I don't think you really believe that as the church. I think the church is is altering their truth claims, but I don't think that that's what the church truly taught in an eternal sense. I see what you're saying. It does raise some questions as to what really is the core doctrine and if you've set your entire testimony on certain things and then it changes to keep up with the times although to be honest it's like 50 years behind the times <laughs> <laughs> like but then then a lot of people i think are going to have faith crises and some of my postmodern friends don't like that word but people are going to kind of be like well where do i go from here I thought this was the truth and I believed in it and you told me it was forever and now it's changing and I don't know where to go from here. And I don't have an answer for that either. I just am trying to make it a safer place for people like us in the church right now who still, I mean, I probably believe less than I do believe, if that makes sense. I'm on the fence, but I'm looking back towards the church to try to make it a safer place. And it's not like these are little things either. It's not like 
this is like some random thing in the scriptures, like, oh, they translated this one word wrong. You know, these are like the plan of happiness, the plan of salvation, what happens after we die. Like, these are foundational things to any religion. So I think some people can say the process of continuing revelation, they can use that explanation for this. But just know that for some people, that answer isn't good enough. And that's okay. And everybody's entitled to feel like my feelings of hurt and anger are bigger than your explanation. And that's okay. So yeah, 100%. Thank you for contributing to this discussion. Let's go a little bit more into as much as you would like to share about the decision to leave the church. Sure. So like I mentioned, I served a mission and I got home in the fall of 2014, came home back to Texas. I got a job and I worked for about four years and I dated and I went to institute and family home evening and I just picked up kind of where I had left off before I left on my mission. So in January, of, I think it was 2018, I quit my job and I decided I was going to move to Salt Lake City with the express purpose of dating and getting married. Let's see how this is going to go. To a woman? To a woman. And I figured where else would be a better place on Canada (laughs) to go than to go to Salt Lake City, the Mecca of Mormons. And I had an opportunity because I had a really good friend that I'm still really close with that lived in Salt Lake. And I moved in with him and it was cheap and we were right downtown and I loved it. And so I said, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to get a job in Salt Lake. I'm going to live off of this income from this real estate that I have in San Antonio. And I am going to turn dating into a full-time job. Dating in, in the church was a literally, that's all I did. I didn't do anything else. So I dated and dated and explored all this stuff. In the summer of that year, we every couple of years, we have a big family reunion. Like 30 or so people were all going to go to a giant house in North Carolina. It's so cool. And it was going to be really fun. And so I, since I didn't have anything else to do, what I was doing is I was dating, but I was also kind of in the back of my mind starting to accept that there's a possibility I might be gay. I had a tremendous amount of internalized homophobia, and I obviously knew it, but I didn't confront it, and I wasn't willing to accept it, and I kind of created all these different narratives where maybe I could do this or this or this and kind of make it work, because I really wanted to stay in the church, and it was just inconceivable that I would leave the church. Mm -hmm. And right before I had left for this trip to North Carolina, I had gone and done a bunch of research on what it meant to be gay. And I actually went to my first, in Salt Lake, there was a big pride event. And I didn't go and march in the parade or anything because I didn't want to get excommunicated or whatever. But I uh, <laughs> I went and I was walking by the little courtyard by the library down there. And there was a dude who was sitting there who was actually in a wheelchair. And he saw me walking by and it was the weirdest thing I have ever experienced in my life. I walked by, he didn't say anything to me, and he just handed me the tickets that he had to get into this little like farmer's market type thing as the gay pride parade. And he had to pay money to get into this thing. And he didn't communicate anything. He just gave it to me. So I walked in this thing and was walking around to all these different booths and was talking to these gay people that I had never interacted with really in a meaningful way. I mean, I worked at Apple and there was a lot of gay people there, but I, 
I wasn't, I wasn't gay. I wasn't part of that. You know, I was just around that. So anyway, all of these experiences kind of happened. I'd done all this research. I'd gone to a pride and I had started to accept the possibility that I think I'm probably gay. And so like a couple days before I left for this trip, I told like a friend of a friend, he was gay. And I told him that I was gay through text. And it was really low key and really mellow. And I felt incredible. It was like a euphoric experience, unlike anything I have ever experienced before or since. It was amazing. And I get on the airplane and I go to North Carolina and I land and I am just miserable because I'm just thinking about this experience that I had had coming out to this guy. And now I'm surrounded by all of my friends and family in this giant house and it's on the beach and it rains almost the whole time. And so we're all inside all the time. Mm. We arrived on like a Monday. And so by Wednesday, I said, I just have to do this. And so I came out to my entire extended family all in one go. Everyone, my grandparents, my brothers and sisters, my their siblings, my cousins, every single person in my extended family in one time, which now I look back and I, my understanding is that's very unusual. Most people kind of have a gradual process where they tell these people. So I had told everybody and... Then we still had three or four more days left of this vacation. Oh, no. And everyone's just awkwardly sitting in this giant house, kind of tiptoeing around the idea that I'm, that I'm gay. And I go back home to Utah. My brother offers me a job in Austin. Right when I got back home to Utah, I got in my car and I drove to Austin. And so I continued to attend church from August of 2018. And I said, I'm going to continue to go to church and try and make this work as a gay member of the church. And I'm going to give it at least through the end of the year. I figured I owed, you know, God or the church or whatever that at least. So at that time, I met with my bishop and his dad was actually gay. Hmm. And he met with me all the time. Really cool guy. Really helpful. Really nice. And he obviously tried to persuade me to, to continue to stay in the church. And eventually, the reason we stopped meeting is towards the end of that year, I said, Bishop, the train has left the station. I've tried to do this. I was really depressed for four or five years when I came home from my mission. I can't make this work. And I'm going to go and explore and, and see if I feel happier doing something else. And so January 1st of 2019, I said, I'm not going back to church unless I feel inclined to do so. And I gave myself space and time to be away from the weekly meetings and from the culture of the church to see how it felt. Because they always talk about the church making happy and <laughs> I had never experienced anything else. So I didn't really know what it felt like. So anyway, I distanced myself from the church and opened myself up to the idea that I was gay and I started dating and, and exploring other ideas outside of the church. And by June 14th of that same year, which happens to be the same day that I was baptized, I removed my records from the church. Wow. So I had gone from January 2018, basically going and searching for a wife. And by almost exactly 18 months later, I formally out of the church. Can I ask, what made you decide to like formally remove your records instead of just not going anymore? Sure. I think it's twofold. One, that's just kind of how I operate. I tend to really like tight timetables. 
because maybe it's the rental business or I don't know what it is, but rent is due on the first and everybody pays in the first. Everything happens in these nice tight sequences. And as a missionary, I was pretty organized and pretty timely. And I just like schedules and I'm a really rigid person in that regard, I think. That's really cathartic for me to end these things on these nice tight timetables is one. And then two, I think part of me, maybe still now and definitely then, felt that if you truly believe the teachings of the church and you believe that you're going to go and do baptisms for the dead and you're going to go and get baptized and get a patriarchal blessing, for example, and record that, you know, whatever's recorded here is recorded in heaven. And so as I'm leaving the church, I believe that still is true, but just in the inverse. So if that doctrine is true, I would like the record to show that I have formally distanced myself. Mm-hmm. I also didn't want to be counted in among the members of the church. Okay. For, for general conference purposes. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to take one away from that. <laughs> so you know okay. me, just the petty gay. So, you know, that that was part of that was part of the reason uh, why I did that. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. I uh as an inactive Mormon that pretty loudly does not believe a lot of things that the church teaches. That's been on my mind a lot because I don't want to be excommunicated. But at the same time, I don't know if I want to stay, (laughs) you know? Anyway, how would you describe your current spirituality? Do you feel like your disability has any ties into it? My lack of spirituality is tied to my disability. I think I am a-spiritual in part because of my disability. And also, I think when you go through the experience of leaving a church in such a well, I actually didn't think it was that fast, but other people around me thought that it was really quick. Yeah. I think when you go through that experience, you start to really question all forms of spirituality and stuff. And so right now, I would say that I am not spiritual at all. Um, I don't okay. believe in a higher power. I don't believe in an afterlife. But I also think that people will ask you a lot of times, like, well, what do you believe now? Now that you're not Mormon, what do you believe? <laughs> Dude, I don't know. Because you, as a member of the church, say that learning the gospel is a lifelong pursuit. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to completely and totally rewrite my entire worldview. And I've been out of the church for, you know, a couple of years. And so it's like, you know, hey, give me a little bit of time. I don't know. But as of right now, not spiritual. And there isn't a huge connection to the disability. Okay. It's nice to have this kind of... uh, spiritual diversity if i can use that phrase it's not a perfect phrase with the you said it was a pretty quick process of you like deciding to step out of the church did you feel pressure to make a definitive decision or like do you feel like you would have given it more time if there wasn't so much pressure about especially the concept of like the history of lgbtq in the church it's not a pretty history it's not it is history the right word? Because it's happening right now. Uh-huh. Like still, it's a weird thing with the church and people feel like they have to come up with like these weird answers of like how, well, we love them. But I just like, it's a hard topic and I want to be respectful to people who are in this because I am not LGBTQ. I just, I'm interested in like if the church claims to be the true church and everyone has a place and everyone belongs, but then there's 
things of what we say and do to LGBTQ people. There's the phrase, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Why are we calling them a sinner? Like, there's just so many things of like, if you're called a sinner, then you don't want to be a part of the church. You know what I mean? Like, we like to pretend like we're open arms to everyone, the church, but we close our arms to certain people, but we pretend like it's not happening. So I wonder if you did feel pushed out because of people or if it was just part of your own journey. And I'm, I'm sure it's hard to answer that question, but what are your thoughts? No, I didn't feel pushed out. I pushed myself, you know, I was, I was running. I was the one who was doing the pushing and the researching to be totally candid. I had heard all of these arguments against the church from like an academic perspective, from a spiritual perspective, from all these different perspectives as a Mormon, because that's what my state president asked me is, hey, you know, are you prepared to do this as a missionary and to confront all of this anti-Mormon stuff? I had mm-hmm. heard all of it. I would read these arguments and things, but I had like an apologetic canned response as a missionary that at the time I truly, genuinely believed was true. And that included my stance on gay marriage and stuff as a closeted gay person. I wasn't saying that and it wasn't keeping me up at night of, oh my word, I can't believe I'm telling this gay kid that I'm teaching that he needs to not be gay. That didn't keep me up at night because I truly believed I was right and he was wrong. And you can modify the language and you can be less pointed and you can say, you know, whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, he was not fitting into the family plan that was expected. And so, no, I didn't feel any sort of outside pressure to leave. And I think that in recent years, it's changed a lot where the church, there was a time when they would excommunicate people who were gay and would go and kind of seek them out. I don't feel like that's the case anymore. And I'm sure that if I would have just walked away, the church I would still be on the records and still be able to, you know, log in. I don't think they were going to like come after me or I wasn't afraid of being excommunicated. I did it just because I didn't want missionaries to come to my door. And I wanted this cathartic process of Mm. of cleansing and and distancing myself while I'm, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at a bookshelf and the bottom portion of it still has Mormon books on it. You know, it's it's still a part of my identity. I still... But that was part of a process where I could get to a point where what I feel is my true identity as a gay person was more prominent and more dominant than this Mormon identity that I had before. Mm, Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's wow. Yeah, I kind of feel similarly to you in the sense that like, I'm never going to be able to distance myself from the church completely because it's part of my heritage. I would love to get to the point where we can, well, maybe we don't want to be included. We, meaning ex-Mormons, want to be included in the word Mormon. But, like, I would love to get to the point where people who were raised Catholic can still claim Catholicism, even if they don't practice it at all. Or, I don't don't want to say anything wrong about the Jewish diaspora. But, um, similarly, you know, where we can say, I'm Mormon by heritage, but that doesn't define me. It's not my lifestyle. It's not what I want to practice, but it's still a part of me. And for people to not be like, what do you mean? That's so weird. You know, I completely and totally agree with you because in those other faiths, they've had time and had diversions and splinters. And so you can be Catholic, but that can be a whole gradient of, you know, Uh being Catholic. But Mormonism is so relatively new and relatively small. And so it's funny that we even have this. It's such a hang up. Of 
in and out of the church and how did you leave and why did you leave and what's this and that. Whereas I think that the tent is just not big enough in Mormonism to have this gradient. And I think the only thing that will do that is time and also, frankly, having kind of a more nuanced view on acknowledging parts of uncomfortable history and rolling with it. Before we go on, I just wanted to say that everybody's faith journey is different. My journey is not the same as Austin's, especially when you're queer in the church. It's really hard. And I'm not going to say that it's easy to stay in the church. It definitely is not. But there are queer people who decide to stay in the church. And I don't want to discount anybody's decision to stay or leave, but I also don't want to erase the experiences of people on either side. So as you listen to Austin share his experience of leaving the church, please remember that he speaks for himself and him alone, and that there are many people in the church right now who do believe that the church can progress and that the true doctrines of the church are in line with homosexuality and that the two are not opposed. And personally, I fall somewhere in between the two. I think that they can come together. I think that the doctrines of the church and queerness can be intertwined and can come together. However, will I see that in my lifetime? And is it worth me staying for the effect, the negative effect that the church has on my life? I don't know. Right now, no, but for other people, it is worth it to try to stay while they're fighting for this. For me, I'd rather kind of step out a little bit while I fight for it. And for Austin, he, well, I'll let him tell his story. Just know that there are people on the fence. There are people in between and we're still here. We're still here even when people try to put us in these little boxes of in the church or out of the church or believing or disbelieving. We exist somewhere in the gray area and that's okay. So that's one thing. The other thing is in terms of feeling external pressure to leave the church, this is maybe an, a controversial opinion, but I actually would be very sad and discouraged if the church made a complete turnaround on their stance on gay marriage. And if the church said everything's equal and we are going to tear up the family proclamation and gays can get married in the church and they can hold callings and they can be bishops and say presence, that would be one of the hardest days of my life for me to accept because for me, I feel like that shows the church is yielding ground to external pressure. And that's not what I originally signed up for. I signed up for do or die, you know, this is, we're riding this thing out and these guys have the truth, you know, everyone else is wrong and we're, we're the one true church on earth. I don't see the one true church on earth changing that part of their dogma and still being the one true church on earth. It's Now you're just every church on the street corner. It's like, what are you, know, this is, uh, I get real Jerry Seinfeld-esque when I get real animated, so sorry for the high pitched voice, but, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? That would be really disheartening for me because at least now, I mean, I feel pretty confident that I've made the right choice, but it's kind of nice to, when I talk to my partner or I talk to my siblings, it's like, well, yeah, I don't agree with a lot of what the church does, but I really respect members of the church because they are living a really, an increasingly uncomfortable life relative to the rest of the world. And that shows at least devotion 
And while I don't agree with it, and I think it's ill-placed, I respect being committed to something. Hmm. I would hate for members of the church to have to go through the church altering around them and undermining their devotion, if that makes sense. Do you think the church teaches it so strongly that it's a part of people's testimonies, that there would be people who would be like, whoa, the rug was pulled out from under me. What do I believe now? If it was changed? I know you can't say a blanket statement because it's hard, but... Well, the members of the church that would feel like the rug was pulled out from underneath them, I would welcome them to leave because I think those are the ones who are camouflaging an underlying amount of bigotry and racism and presenting it as religion. So if you have a really hard time with gays or something and the church says, you know, no, or vaccines or, you know, whatever, anything <laughs> like that, I think if you say, whoa, the church is no longer true, I think you should get out of the church. But I think the other people will stay in the church. But unfortunately, I think they're going to do a lot of maneuvering. They're not going to just say the church was wrong and the church changed. They're going to say, mm. you know, create some narrative that fits. Moving the tent around on little legs to cover the people that it wants to cover. Yeah. Yeah. Down H. Oaks says that the church doesn't apologize and they don't need to apologize. Okay. Okay, Mr. Oaks. I really appreciate the the nuance in did I use the word right Serena yes you did the nuance in your answer I really appreciate that sure do you want to do the last question Katie yeah yeah I think we hit on pretty much all the other points if you could tell an able-bodied person member or not anything about your life as a disabled person what would you express at least for me what I would really like someone who is not disabled to understand is that a lot of times the most difficult part of being disabled is not the obvious physical disability. It's all of the more minute, you know, minor things like missing out on uh, formative social experiences or navigating social experiences like as an adult or like strategies that are used to get through the day. A lot of times, you know, people don't realize that maybe you don't sit down at a table or something because you can't get in the bench seat or you, you know, something like that. That, to me, is the most challenging thing. It's not that I don't have access to, you know, dexterity in my left hand. It's those sorts of things, which will maybe a little bit less seen, I guess. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Jorg, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, happy to do it. I'm glad I was able to come on. It was awesome. Please follow us on Instagram at holyhuman. That's W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. Contribute to our Patreon, patreon.com slash holyhuman. You can find us on Facebook at Holy Human Podcast. And if you would like to be involved, you can send us an email, holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to thank Mativ for our intro and outro music. We access the song through freesound.org. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next time.